And Paul Tagliabue turned to me and he said, you know, Don, you're going to learn what life is like without leverage. And that has motivated me and inspired me. It is that scrappy thing that I was born with, this idea that I wanted to prove to myself and to others that no matter how difficult a situation was or the adversity that we were facing, that if you're smart, if you work hard, if you're creative and you can build relationships, then you're going to be successful. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Don Garber. Don is a commissioner of Major League Soccer, the premier professional soccer league in the United States and Canada. He is also the founder and CEO of Soccer United Marketing an affiliate of MLS and one of the world's leading commercial and media soccer companies. Under his leadership, MLS has expanded from 10 to 29 clubs, added 25 new owners, and secured long-term broadcast agreements with ESPN, Fox, and Univision, and major broadcasters in Europe, Asia, and South America. Don has also led efforts to develop 20 soccer stadiums in the United States and Canada, and a minimum of seven more soccer venues will open in the next few years. Prior to joining MLS, Don spent 16 years in a variety of sales, marketing, programming, and event management positions at the National Football League. Don, welcome to the podcast. Since the Paulson family owns the Portland Timbers, I've had a ringside seat watching you transform Major League Soccer and manage through the pandemic. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now, let's start with your early life. What was it like growing up in Queens? What did you learn from your parents? And were you always interested in sports? So Hank, first, it's great to be able to participate. And it's really a perfect place to start. When I think back at my early days of my life, uh, Hank, growing up in Queens really defined me. I don't think I knew that then, but I certainly know that now, now that I travel around the world and I interact with so many different people. So I grew up in Queens in the, the 60s and 70s. And if you grew up as a Queens boy, as we Queens people describe ourselves, you know, there were no pretenses. You know, yeah. you were judged by what you were as opposed to who you were. You know, we were all the kids of immigrants, people who came into the country. My grandparents were immigrants. My parents moved to Brooklyn and then everybody moved to the, the suburbs at that time, which was in Queens. And, you know, both my parents worked. They were school teachers. You know, I was a latchkey kid. I went to school, you know, I, I got home, I, I made myself a sandwich, then I hung out in a schoolyard, right? There were no big parks and things like that. And I played whatever sport that was seasonal at that time. So all the great images you've seen, Hank, of kids playing stickball against the handball court, Man, I was a stickball player and, and wow. I play Little League Baseball. You played softball on an asphalt, you know, surface. You played touch football. You played basketball in a metal rim. And if you were a good teammate, you know, if you were a loyal friend, if you were somebody that you could be counted on, you were successful. And all of that sort of helped 
me understand how to be able to interact with a former treasury secretary and the CEO of Goldman Sachs to, you know, being able to deal with, you know, somebody that is, uh, you know, working in our mailroom at MLS. And I, I think that I learned growing up in Queens. The second thing is I was a product of the New York City public schools. You know, I went to a high school, Hank, that had 6,000 kids, my high school. I grew up in the busing area where I had to leave my neighborhood and go into a more integrated neighborhood. And that taught me lessons about race when I was very young, very different than I think many other people that I think helped define the way I live my life today. And it certainly helped define me as a husband, as a father, and then ultimately as a CEO. Yeah. And, you know, I bet that you had to be able to take a few knocks, right? And, <laughs> and give out a few knocks yeah. along the way. So, and get That's more- very true, Hank. And I know, listen, you and I are close. I mean, I know that, you know, those of us that have had to fight for the things that either we believe in to fight for what's right, or ultimately to fight, obviously, in a less physical way for those things that really matter. You know, my ability to chart through the complications of running a merging league, particularly in the sport of soccer. I learned all that as a kid, you know, and and getting knocked around a bit was important in my life. And you learn, you know, as someone who's a product of public schools and sent my kids to public schools, you learn a lot in a public school. Because it's not just the academic excellence you need, but it's working with others and working with people from different backgrounds. It's huge. So you moved from NFL to MLS over 20 years ago when soccer was on the brink of failure. Why did you make that jump? Talk a bit about how your career unfolded and how the league has developed. So Hank, this will be a fun one. And, and I, you know, most people don't ask, I'm now in pro sports for 34 years, right? So most people don't really ask what happened 34 years ago. I had a very interesting, almost coincidental path. So yes, in the first question, was I a jock? You know, I played sports my whole life. Sports mattered to me. It was a part of my identity, but I never sort of came out of, you know, a college thinking I'd go into the sports industry. I was working in advertising. Uh, the sports marketing business had just sort of begun its formation stages. And I was representing an advertiser, M&M Mars, you know, the, uh, the candy company. Yep. And I was working for an agency. And my last project was for the 1984 Olympics. I took a jar of M&Ms around the country in a truck and people had to guess how many M&Ms were in the jar and they <laughs> want a trip to the 84 Olympics. The 84 games were coming to an end and the client said, hey, why don't you look at the NFL and see if we could buy a sponsorship? So I went to, called up, literally called, made a cold call and I called up and said, I'm representing Eminem Mars. Can we talk about a sponsorship? I went in and, and a bunch of really sharp looking guys in suits and all looking like they had, you know, come from Ivy League schools, which they did, by the way. Uh, made a pitch. I got back to my office and these guys called me up. I said, man, you guys are aggressive. They said, no, Don, we actually want to talk to you about coming to work for the National Football League. And at that time, they had just started a company that was the marketing arm of the NFL. And I ended up getting a job there, Hank. I was the only non-MBA Ivy League guy. I was the Queens guy. I was the scrappy guy that came in. And I worked in the NFL for 19 years and started in sponsorship 
And then I had kind of a shootout, Hank. I, I never told you this story before. After about seven years, I had had my first child. I was, you know, about 30 years old. And the guy who was running sponsorship, who now is the chairman of Octagon, a big sports marketing firm, said, hey, Don, we decided we're going to give somebody else the top job and you're out. And I said, what do you mean I'm out? I've been doing a great job. And he said, no, you're out, Don. I said, well, why don't you give me the weekend to think about what the NFL wasn't doing? I wanted to come up with a plan to get out of sales anyway. And I took that weekend, I came back in and I created a department that in essence was launching all sorts of TV programming and off, launching sponsorship activation programming and grassroots programming like the relaunch of Pump, Pass and Kick and entertainment stuff. And I presented it to my boss and he said, Don, this is brilliant. Let's go pitch Paul Tagliabue. And I went into Paul's office and the most important part of that was the launch of something called the NFL Experience, all the events at the Super Bowl, which they were not doing at that time. The halftime show, you know, not being dancing snowflakes, but maybe a big star. That became Michael Jackson. And then Paul said, I love it, Don, why don't you come back? And I became the guy for Paul that did the new, interesting, exciting, creative things. And when he and Roger Goodell were launching an international division, Paul called me up and said, Don, why don't you start this new division? At that point, I didn't even have a passport. And I said, great, you know, I'll do it. I went back to my, my wife and said, I got to be on the road for three years. And that period of time, I opened up seven offices and launched their whole division. And I reported to Robert Kraft and Lamar Hunt. And those were the guys that founded Major League Soccer. And I knew that Roger was likely going to be the next commissioner. I had been in the league almost 20 years at that point. And Robert pulled me aside at an owner's meeting. It actually was in Atlanta. Arthur Blank was hosting a party. And he said, hey, Don, we have this league and we have a commissioner. We're looking to make a move. Why don't you come over and be our commissioner? And I, I don't even, I barely knew how many people were soccer players were on the field. But I figured, you know, it was a big challenge. Running an international business for the NFL was a big challenge. Obviously, it was not culturally relevant in outside the U.S. And long story short, you know, they, they did a deal with Paul. They traded me, Hank, because Paul used to work for the law firm for the North American Soccer League. Paul was a guy that was very close to the sport. And I just said I had nothing to lose, right? I, I thought it would, might last a year or two. And that was 21 years ago. <laughs> so it turned well, out okay. But, but to me, you illustrate what I see as the best of business leaders and managers, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit. I always talk about the really great leaders and managers to find their job expansively and or, or they work in organizations that also encourage them to do that. You know, I wouldn't have stayed at Goldman Sachs for 32 years if the firm didn't keep letting me create new jobs for myself and do different things and getting to help you know, expand Goldman's global footprints. I really hadn't traveled outside the United States until it was part of my job. So in any event, it's, it, it is, and you've really been not just a leader and a manager, but you've really transformed organizations. So now let's talk a little bit about management. So you've managed a league in crisis and on the brink of failure during the early 2000s when you went 
to, to Major League Soccer, to now growing, expanding a very valuable, respected and healthy sports property, which Major League Soccer is. These are two very different jobs with different skill sets. You know, it's, it's totally different jobs. How have you navigated this change? And is this evolution one of the reasons you, you stayed fresh and haven't burned out despite being nearly commissioner for 20 years? Because the job has changed so much. So, so Hank, it's a great question. And I also, a story that I don't think I've told before in my, nobody leaves the National Football League unless they're fired. You know, if you're going to work in sports, you want to work for, you know, the big, most valuable property. But to me, I wanted a career which would be about managing opportunity. And I didn't think if I stayed there longer that I would be able to be creative and innovative and be able to move forward, you know, jobs and careers, you gotta be like a shark. If you don't move, I don't mean move jobs, but constantly move forward, then I don't think you're gonna be able to use all of your capacity. So I had an exit interview, which they had never done before. And I sat with the commissioner and, and a number of other people around uh, the office. And Paul Tagliabue turned to me and he said, you know, Don, you're gonna learn what life is like without leverage. And the idea that I was going from a business where everybody takes your call to now where nobody really is gonna to wanna to answer your call. And that has motivated me and inspired me. It is that scrappy thing that I was born with, this idea that I wanted to prove to myself and to others that no matter how difficult a situation was, the adversity that we were facing, that if you're smart, if you work hard, if you're creative, and you can build relationships, then you're going to be successful. So for me, from the very beginning, uh, Hank, the early days were way more difficult than I thought. I got in there in the first couple of years, we were on the brink of bankruptcy. And I remembered being asked by Phil Anschutz, who at that time was the, you know, really the driving owner in the league, you guys get to come up with a plan to determine how are we going to keep this league moving forward? And I used that and, and ultimately we created that plan. It was innovative, it, it had us restructuring, it had us coming up with new market opportunities. But the key aspect of that, Hank, is we needed to create a plan. And every successful business person, you can't do this by the seat of your pants. You really need to be able to do the research, do the math, create all of the integrations between your various businesses and put that in front of those who are gonna fund it no different than any other sale and buy them. You know, you gotta, you gotta buy their trust. We had no leverage to be able to do that. We were smart and we came up with a plan. We have been planning and developing new strategies and coming up with new innovations to address opportunity since the beginning of the league. And that is something that we do. You attend our board meetings. We do that as a course, it's part of our DNA. So in the early days, we managed through crisis. I could remember being so concerned about our ability to move forward, but every good leader's got to have courage. You can't think about what it's going to mean to you personally. You got to think about what it is that you're trying to achieve. So I've said this so many different times before, resiliency, courage, commitment, innovation are the things that have sort of defined the MLS brand for all of us who've been associated with it. And that's what allowed us to get through the bubble in Orlando. It's allowed us to get through restructuring. It's allowed us to get through 9-11. It's allowed us to get through the economic crisis. And it's that coupled with the commitment of our owners, folks like you and your partners that were so dedicated to the cause 
this cause of building a great division one soccer league that could be the envy of the world. And when you, I think about those relationships and everything that we've had to do over the last 20 years to ensure that we move forward bit by bit, day by day and year by year. And you know, I'm just gonna emphasize one thing you said that is so obvious, but sometimes people just don't do it. Starting with a plan, starting with a well thought out plan and then executing against that plan. They're just, there aren't any shortcuts. Yeah. I mean, that's what you've got to do. And yeah, I can see the title of a book. Yeah. There are no shortcuts, man. There's no shortcuts in life. There's no shortcuts in business. That's for sure. Now, I want to set the stage for our listeners who may not follow soccer as closely as you and I do. How big is soccer globally? Where is the U.S. market relative to the global market? And what is the potential for soccer's growth in America? Well, you know, let's start with the sport. Uh, and I'll, I'll start before I get to the economic description. Soccer or football, as they call it around the world, Hank, is more important in people's lives than sport is in the lives of people here in America. It's so important that it drives governments. I like to say, if you think about soccer in South America or Central America, after the church and their family, there are three things that matter to them. You know, their family, their church, and their football. And that's unlike, you know, sports really are important here and particularly college sports. You see the the passion of, of alumni for college football, but nothing measures the power of football around the world. I remember going to the World Cup in 2010. Bill Clinton, President Clinton was our guest because we had been lobbying, as you know well, for the World Cup to come to the U.S. in 2022. And he was our guest at the World Cup in South Africa. He was not a sitting president, but Bill Clinton was a former president of the United States. He did not sit in the Tribune at the World Cup final because he was not a sitting president. And all of a sudden, we had to find a place for President Clinton to watch the game. And it's because there was the king of Spain was at the game, right? And the king of Holland was at the game, right? It was so important in ways that are just not like it is in the U.S. The total value of football around the world is about the equivalent of the value of all of our leagues here in the United States combined, because they're not competing with each other. It is from a U.S. market relative, we're way smaller than the rest of the world. You know, MLS is a billion and a half dollar business here today and the other leagues here in in the United States are multiples of that. But if you were to compare MLS to the Premier League, the Premier League is a $5 billion business domestically, globally, it's double that. And MLS is just a 10th of that. So we're so much smaller than the rest of the world from a football perspective. But when you think about the size of our market, we are the largest market in the world as it relates to spending on sports dwarfs the rest of the world. And that's because of the size of our country, the fact that most of the major corporations that spend our sports are based here. It's the maturity of our media market. It's the uniqueness of our merchandising business. It's the value of all of our hospitality and game day revenues. So that's why the rest of the world looks at the United States as a virtual ATM. They look to come here to develop their businesses because we are the largest market from an opportunity perspective anywhere in the world. The future of soccer is in the United States. That's why the World Cup will be here in 2026. 
It's why all the European leagues are opening offices here. It's why Major League Soccer is such a promising property. So let's look to 2026. The US, Mexico, and Canada will host the World Cup. Huge opportunity. What's your vision for MLS over the next five years? And what do you hope to accomplish before the World Cup comes to America? And what will this event mean for soccer in the United States? Well, you know, there is no event in the world that's larger than the World Cup, right? It's bigger than the Olympic, it's bigger than the Super Bowl, it's bigger than the World Series. Billions and billions of viewers. You know, you've seen all these images around the world. It doesn't matter whether you're a sheep herder living somewhere or you're a corporate CEO. Everybody in the world watches the World Cup, including people in the United States too, Hank. The largest market in the world for the World Cup is the United States from an economic perspective. More money is spent from US advertisers. More people go to the World Cup from the US than any other country in the world so that the opportunity when it's here is massive. We do think it's gonna be a $5 billion three week event. So it'll be larger than any other event that this country has ever had. When you think about the largest World Cup ever to take place here from a revenue perspective was the World Cup in 1994. And that was so many years ago. It's because of how passionate people are and also because our stadiums are so big, right? We could average 80,000 fans a game at the World Cup for those many, many matches. So it's gonna be massive. We have the unique ability, and you've talked about this, I know when you and I've chatted about businesses that can plan, there is a rare occurrence in any business where you know exactly what will happen six years from now. Six years from now, the World Cup will be here. And that gives us a runway to be able to build a commercial business, a fan business, a merchandising business, an opportunity to capture the hearts and minds of fans, knowing that we could have a countdown clock that's six years. That North Star is very unique to happen. I don't care what business it is. Nobody can look at ensuring what will happen six years from now. So we hope to accomplish being bigger, having more teams, being more popular. We'll have a new media deal in 2023. We'll have 30 teams. We'll have 28 stadiums. All of that is part of this massive wave of investment and opportunity. So what do I think it'll mean from us? It'll be an enormous boost of unprecedented proportions for our league and the sport overall for the United States. So I want to look ahead a bit and, you know, I'm going to get to COVID in a minute, but other than COVID, which is, you know, a short-term challenge, what are the biggest challenges for MLS? Competition from Europe, talked about all the leagues wanting to open up offices in the United States, you know, competition from other sports in the U.S., other obstacles. What do you see as the biggest obstacles Major League Soccer has, you know, to overcome? You know, it's a really great question, Hank, and I think there are the obvious ones. You know, how do you look at a typical SWOT analysis and look at what your opportunities are, what your risks are? So it's obvious that as we become more valuable around the world, the rest of the world, as I said, looks to us for opportunity and looks to extract revenue from this market so that they could further their own goals. That's what capitalism is all about. You know, I am a capitalist. I'm not afraid of competition. Frankly, I think competition makes you better. I do think it's less about competitions from other sport in the United States and more about how does the rest of the world look to capture the opportunity of building a fan base, building a commercial base, for example. 
mining, mining as in, you know, mining our players and trying to uh, have those players leave our league and go over to their leagues. So I look at the rest of uh, the domestic competition, you know, baseball has, has average fans 60 years old, ours is 35. We have the youngest uh, fan base in all of the major leagues. America's becoming more diverse. We have the most diverse fan base of all of the major leagues. A higher percentage of our fan base is Hispanic than any other league. So all of those things have us positioned very well against the, the major leagues here in the United States. The obstacles that I see or challenges that I see actually are, how do we manage all of this growth internally, Hank? So as we sit around the board table, how do we ensure that we're controlling costs? How do we ensure that we're not thinking that the path to profitability or the path to success is short-term as opposed to mid-term and long-term? How do we manage the diversity of ownership? Some that come from have large markets, some that have massive potential to be able to do the things that they want to and need to do versus our slow growth opportunity. So those are the things that I see. I spend a lot of time thinking about opportunity and challenges. And, and I think any CEO needs to do that every day. So Don, I'm now going to move to crisis management. I know a little something about that. I've dealt with that in the private sector and a treasury. And I've watched you during this crisis and your leadership has been extraordinary. And I don't say that lightly. So COVID has been a huge challenge for all sports, but for MLS, you know, that's true. And the NBA got most of the publicity for finishing their season in the bubble in Orlando. But you were the pioneer and MLS went there first for 35 days and conducted a highly successful MLS's back tournament. I might add, which the Portland Timbers happened to win. <laughs> but, then, but then now MLS has come back and completed a 23-game season, followed by playoffs, and awarded the MLS Cup just on Saturday to the Columbus crew. So in early March, this sure didn't seem possible to me as you and I talked. So... What did you learn, first of all, operating inside the bubble, you know, just that experience? And then what have you learned about crisis leadership this year? Well, let me, let me start with uh, this was a season like no other for every, you know, uh, leader of any business, for any citizen in the world. For us, it was particularly challenging. And as an industry, the live event business, like the restaurant business, has perhaps been hit the hardest by COVID. What was frustrating and, and, and a challenge for us in particular, Hank, was, you know, this was our 25, 25th season. So nobody ever expected this league to be here, strong, viable, expanding, great owners, you know, lots of popularity in 25 years. So we really were, were had a season-long celebration plan. We had such momentum in two weeks of our season we had a 60,000 people at Nashville's opening game, one of our new teams, our not new team in Miami that was 10 years in the making, opened up in LA and it was enormously popular. The Atlanta team had 70,000 fans at their opening game. I mean, we were thinking we were going to be on a roll and then we shut down. Uh, and uh, to, to say that that was traumatic is almost an understatement because beyond having to figure out now what, we had to do things that had never been done before. We had to come up with medical protocols for testing faster than the general public because we needed to get our players back 
on the field. And we couldn't do that without widespread testing. We needed to figure out how they would interact with each other. How do we have medical advisors from the infectious disease community as opposed to the cardiac and orthopedic community. You know, imagine making cold calls to infectious disease doctors so that they could help us with those plans. We knew we needed to get back to play as quickly as possible. And we came up with this idea of a bubble in Orlando. Great that ESPN was our partner. We knew Jimmy Pitaro, the CEO of ESPN, Bob Iger, and they were welcoming us down to their sports park and also to hotels that were empty. And then we executed 51 games in 35 days, which was in, just impossible to imagine that that would happen. So yeah, am I frustrated that we didn't get as much credit as perhaps other leagues, perhaps, but you know, that's again, what we'll talk about when we get to leadership. You know, I, I try not to spend my time worrying about others, though it secretly pisses me off, right? What we needed to worry about was ultimately, what do we need to do to ensure that we can get it done? Your point was a good one, Hank. Beyond going to the bubble, finishing our regular season and playoffs, and then having a hosted MLS Cup, we were the only league in the world that was able to achieve that. And thankfully, the Wall Street Journal just wrote an article that was reflecting on that because I think it was a great credit to our owners who supported the plan, you and your partners, our players, you know, who had to go to a bubble and then travel around and, and do things that were unique. Three teams that had to play, Canadian teams that had to play in the U.S., and then ultimately, you know, the idea that we would be able to deliver all this in a safe and healthy way for our players. Innovations to capture revenue. So what did I learn? Learn that, you know, all of these things that we were thinking about, like virtual advertising, we said, it's time to stop thinking about it. We got to get it done. And we got it done in a few weeks. And I think that will transform the way revenue is generated in our stadiums, the NBA and NHL just announced that they're going to continue that in the early part of the year. And I think we'll continue that as well. So this idea of, you know, just tireless focus, like you have told me you did during the financial crisis, you know, you, you can't go to sleep, you know, you can't get depressed. You just have to have a laser focus on the end game. And then this idea of nothing is impossible, you know, or impossible is nothing. This idea that we could pull this off, a lot of people are naysayers say it would never happen. I knew we would do it if we can get everybody together, stop thinking about what couldn't happen, but try to get focused on what could happen. That is so important. You know, no one wants to fire someone during a crisis who is going to be overly optimistic, but no one's going to say, follow me, we're not going to succeed. You know, you just clearly have got to come forward with a plan as you did which was possible, and get everybody behind it. Now, I want to, before leaving COVID, how do you see that impacting the 2021 season? Well, I think it will impact it significantly, Hank, and, and it's frustrating. You know, I, I think about, you, we were on so many calls together. You think about what we went through last year. Now we have a bit more certainty as to how to manage uh, the virus but we have no certainty as to when we will have a business that will have fans in our stadiums, allowing us to capture our revenues in ways that drive investment, right, and drive value. So it is a challenge. Uh, now, the, the NBA and the other leagues are starting. The NBA started preseason already. Our season is not slated to start until March. So I look forward to having a couple of months to be able to figure out what we need to do to develop a plan to get our fans back in, capture revenue, 
come up with all the health and safety protocols. When I was at MLS Cup, Hank, uh, just the other day, you know, we had rapid testing for everybody that arrived in the stadium. And I think you're going to start seeing rapid testing at airports and rapid testing prevalent even before the, vi- the, the vaccine is widely available. So we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, ultimately, the economic impact is uh, going to be significant. And like everything we'll do, we're going to have to be strong and courageous and make good decisions so that we can get through it. Well said. And, you know, that's the other thing about crisis management. And this is still a crisis. You have to have a plan and then be prepared to change when the facts change. So, Don, I'm going to now turn to something that you and I both really like. We share a passion for saltwater and freshwater fly fishing and for biking. I know you're also quite a paddleboarder. Explain to our listeners what it is about fishing that appeals to you. And are you like me that getting on a bike and riding for an hour helps you relax? What other hobbies do you have? Because, you know, everybody needs some hobbies and needs some things to do because you can't be working full time. No matter how hard the job is, you'll just burn yourself out unless you've got some hobbies. Yeah, well, it's what I love about uh, being friendly with you, Hank. I mean, I saw you the other day on a, on a horse herding cattle, and I said to your son, man, I, I don't know how he does it. It's just absolutely remarkable. So I admire that about you. It's one of the things that I really respect and continue to want to emulate. And when I see people, Hank, that don't have hobbies, they're just not interesting. And if your life is entirely focused on just work, I don't think you'll be effective as a leader or effective uh, and productive. I think you'll burn out and ultimately you're just so much less fun to be around. So for me, fly fishing, think of how unique it is, Hank. You know, I grew up in Queens, you know, the, it wasn't like I was able to go out and fish in places. I, my first fishing experiences was on the, the jetty under the Throgs Neck Bridge casting little spoons for snapper bluefish when I was a little kid. I'd ride my bike down to uh, the area there. But for me, it is just, I love it. Every day, I love it more. I was out the other day, even in in mid-December, and I was uh, fly fishing for trout. And I said to my wife, who's cold as heck, it is the only thing that I do where I don't think of anything else other than how could I outsmart this animal that has no brain and it's going, I'm going to try to entice it to eat this little piece of metal with a feather on it. And when I do it, even when I'm by myself, I'm the happiest man in the world. So I love to fish and uh, biking, Hank, for me, I really exercise a lot. Another thing I think you got to exercise if you're going to stay vibrant and healthy, you know, getting out in a road bike and riding uh, for a long time is great exercise. It is also the other thing I don't think about much because I don't want to get hit by a car. You know, I try to focus if I'm riding fast, getting my average up. I know we've talked about this. I like to track my my rides, my miles per hour, you know, my heart rate. Uh, so those are the things that get me out there. But if I could fish every day, Hank, man, I'd be a happy man. You and I both. There's <laughs> nothing like being out on the water. And it's the same thing with me. I'm totally, I don't think about anything else. Because to try to see the fish get the fly in front of the fish, do all that. It's just, you know, it's hard to think about anything else. I know you got one, you got a couple more questions, Hank, but I'm getting my captain's license. So I think 
the next time we go out, you know, you might have to call me Captain Don. Oh, that, that's, that's something else. That's something else. So I, I wouldn't get that because I'd be so busy thinking about fishing. I'd run aground or I'd forget the tides. I remember the first time I went out in a boat in salt water, you talked about growing up in Queens. I grew up in Illinois. So the first time I'm out in salt water, I remember going out, pulling my boat up to an island, getting out. Now, when I came back, I said, who pulled my boat way out there in the mud? Well, guess what? The tide the tide had gone out and I ran aground going back. So so I'm not going to get a, a captain's license. I'm going to get someone else to be the captain, but I'm going to do the fishing. But maybe you could be the captain and I'll fish. So I want to finish with, with something else because, Don, I think there are a few things more satisfying than growing a business like you've done with MLS. And, you know, I think there's few things you can do that are more worthwhile in terms of the jobs it creates, all the people that you touch. So for the budding entrepreneurs out there, what are the Garber principles for leadership? I, I want that. And then I want advice for young people interested in sports management. These are two very different questions because it looks like I know every young kid who's played sports all say, yeah, we want sports management, right? Uh, and so yeah. let's get to both of them. But first of all, your principles for management. Sure. You know, Hank, I read a lot of books. I've read all yours and I'm always impressed by how articulate and poignant great leaders are in describing what makes them a good leader. For me, it is more innate. Uh, and it's more simplistic because as you know me pretty well by now, you know, I think for me, there are only four or five things that are so basic that probably would make a good book, but they are what I think are most important. I think the best leaders have to be the hardest working person in the room. And you've seen this and have commented on it. And I know that you're this way, Hank. I mean, I've heard this from so many people that I've met who have worked for you. If you can't lead by example, and show everyone that there is nothing that you as a leader won't do that you're asking them to do, then you will never be effective. And I would, I'd feel this way if I was in the military. I've thought about that often. I would want to be the person at the head of the platoon, taking people along for the ride, uh, because there's nothing I would ask them to do that I wouldn't do myself. Uh, the second one is even simpler, Hank, and I work on this all the time, and it's not my greatest skill. But I think you've got to be a great listener. And you've heard this from so many different people, but I force myself and I have to force myself to listen. But that input helps define the way I might make decisions. But you also have to have the courage to make the tough decisions when you need to. Get the input and then basically ensure after you have that input that you're going to make the decision and then the discussion is over. Right. So the third for me, and I've said this before, and you could see it's a theme with me, you know, you have to believe in the possible. That doesn't mean you've got to be one of these widely optimistic Pollyannic people that, you know, don't understand the reality of the challenges you're facing. But if you believe in the possible and then to our pr previous point, have the ability to lead those to create the plan and then have the strength and conviction to get people with yourself to execute it, then you'll never be able to earn the respect of those you're trying to lead. That's the way I think about the board. I come in with plans. I believe that there's nothing we can't achieve, but then as you know, we're gonna, to the previous two, work as hard as we can to execute that. And third for me is, I don't think people should ever underestimate the impact 
of the way you act in a particular situation and what effect that has on people around you. So this is all the stuff that we're dealing with in life today with CEOs of companies, how you treat people with respect, how you manage your own life. You know, I say to my family, you know, you're the son of somebody who is in or daughter of somebody who's in the public eye. You need to live your life knowing that everybody is looking at you. Now I'm a public figure like you were, but if you're the leader of a small company of five, people still are looking to you to live a good life, to live an ethically based life, and to basically make the right decisions with how you are as a person. The third thing to me is remember, it's never about you. You know, the best leaders are willing to give others the credit. This sounds so simple, but it's so important. And also to take the blame so that you can protect the people around you. You know, you're no different than when you're a parent. You know, you got to put yourself out there and understand that it is never about you. And Hank, I try to think about this all the time. I get a lot of great kudos from people in and around it, but I try to push all of that down to everybody else. And then the last one is, and then I'll get to the sports industry. I know we're taking a little more time than we were supposed to, but I always think that it's all going to work out. You know, when I went through the restructuring in MLS, I can remember Phil Anschutz talked to me and say, Don, you know, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of you. I said, Hank, you don't, uh, Phil, you don't have to take care of me. I knew it was going to work out. I just believed that soccer was going to make it. When we went through the pandemic, Hank, I knew we were going to get through it, right? So it's going to work out. So you better have some sense of sort of optimism about what the future is going to hold. Yeah, so, I, I, would, I would say as someone who's read management books and so on, I think the principles you've outlined are those that you do intrinsically that most good managers need to do. And, you know, your last two points, you know, your last one, it's hard to find someone if you don't have an optimistic, positive sentiment, attitude about life in general, you're not going to succeed. You're really not. And people want to work with someone that's positive. And then clearly, you know, caring about people and having it not be about you. That's the key thing. And I want to spend a little bit of time because I can't tell you the number of young kids who love sports, right? So they love sports. So they say, I want to get into sports management. And of course, that's a great thing. And if you've played sports, you've learned teamwork and you've got an empathy, but, but there's so many of them. You know, I always start off saying, no, what is it you want to do in sports management other than loving sports? So I hear, hear that from a few. You must hear that from a whole lot of people. People say, I've got a son, I've got a daughter. You know, they're interested in sports. Right. So Hank, I think one of the most enjoyable parts of my job is being able to be in a position to get the best and brightest to come into our industry and in essence, transform it from a passion play to one where we're getting those that could help our industry move forward in so many different ways and become more valuable for everyone from a customer perspective, from a stakeholder perspective and an investor perspective. And I speak to young kids all the time, Hank. And I, the first thing I tell them is, this is a great industry, not because you're a football fan or a soccer fan, but to your point, an industry where you could work around people, you could be around people that have a shared interest, and then you could work in an environment where you actually can see your byproduct happening every weekend. Now, I'm not diminishing what it might be like to be a banker or to be involved in other industries, but there are very few things that you could do. We can come to work every day 
and then turn on the television and know that what you did is playing out on the screen day in and day out and year in and year out. So your contributions to a beginning in the middle of the end are something that I like being an artist or being a musician. That's something that I find really, really enjoyable. The second thing is you actually can make a really good living. And when I got in, it wasn't the case, but now there are so many different aspects of the sports industry. So it is a great career. And what I tell them is it's really hard. It is a really hard industry to get into, but I've never met anybody who couldn't get in if they gave it the time, they did work, they did an internship, perhaps got an advanced degree and understood that relationships matter. So who you talk to and how you engage and all those informational interviews and taking things away from that and remembering that all of that is part of your education. If you do that and are willing to put in the time, you will get a job in the sports industry. I've never seen anybody who wanted to get in who couldn't. Second thing that I say to them is that the person that you're interacting with today might be your next boss or your next client. So that as you get into the business, and I've learned this, Hank, I mean, people that I've started in the business are now CEOs of companies or they're politicians or they're owners or they're running you know, media companies that when I started with them, they were just a production assistant. And all of those relationships in sports tend to be those that are the most important. It's probably no different than your relationships in banking, right? I've seen that certainly over the years. Everywhere. I mean, people need to learn that most, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's banking, whether it's government, sports, industry, it's about people. It's about relationships, building trust, working with others to get things done those kinds of skills. And also, as you said earlier, no shortcuts. So I I would say, Don, this has been absolutely terrific. So what we're seeing unfold real time, you know, with soccer and sports during the pandemic and, you know, the long-term, short and long-term future of soccer, I think it's all very exciting. And I really appreciate all you're doing right now to build Major League Soccer so it makes a difference for a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you, Hank. It's a, thanks for your support, your friendship. And, and for me too, Hank, thanks for being a great role model. You know, I've learned so much from working well alongside you and with you and understanding what hard work and perseverance and courage is and understanding when to be tough and when to be accepting that you're not going to get your way all the time, understanding relationships, and also, Hank, understanding that at times you do need to take a deep breath. You got to try to tighten that line and get a fish on the other end of it. I wouldn't be the commissioner if I am uh, here today, Hank, if it wasn't for our relationship. So I really appreciate that very much. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.